saw that. I saw it when I planned that. Um, I was excited uh, that we get to really kind of focus in on just one thing today, and I'll tell you what that one thing is in just a moment. When we read the passage, you'll know. I uh, thought it would produce a shorter sermon, and that's the hope, but I can't guarantee that. Just a lot. A lot in three verses. So Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read through verse 25. I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And then if you could just respond by saying thanks be uh, to God. Mark 14, 22 through 25. That's what the Holy Spirit says through Mark. And as they, that being Jesus and the disciples, were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Uh, by, means of, by means of welcome, uh, really grateful to God that you're here. I was having a conversation with, um, with a dear friend and brother last Wednesday at Community Group um, just about how uh, you don't always feel it on Sunday morning, whether you're a pastor or you're a leader in the church or whether you know, you're here. Um, uh, you, you don't always feel it when you come in. Sundays can be really chaotic. They can be stressful. They can be discouraging. Uh, in light of all of those things, you're here. I'm grateful to God that you're here. Uh, we're here because Hebrews 10 says, in part we're here, Hebrews 10 says, uh, to not neglect the gathering, to not neglect uh, the meeting with one another, uh, so that we can encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near. And so I'm going to pray for us that over the next 35 or so minutes, uh, the Holy Spirit through the Word of God would conform you and I more into the image of Jesus. That we're not just here for the sake of Sundays. We're not here for the sake of attendance. We're not here for any of those reasons. We're here because by God's grace, we might come to know, love, and enjoy Jesus more and become more like Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Cool? So regardless of what you come in with this morning, welcome. As Jesus welcomes us, we welcome you. Glad you're here. Uh, let's pray. Father, we love you, and thank you for gracing us with your word. God, thank you uh, that all of your word is breathed out by you, by the Holy Spirit, and profitable for teaching and training and rebuke. God, thank you that your word testifies about Jesus. And thank you that we have the opportunity this morning, regardless of how we're coming in, and I pray this for myself as well, uh, to be comforted by the reality of the gospel. And pray, uh, Spirit, would you allow your gospel, your good news, to be a balm to our soul this morning. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So here's the kind of the big idea, my hopeful walk back a little bit. Thank you, Tyler Bauer. Thank you, brother. Um, my prayer and hope for us this morning is really simple. Uh, this morning is about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is something that you and I do as Christians. If we're Christians in the room, if by grace, by God's grace, you and I have put our faith in Jesus and his finished work on our behalf, if we have taken the weight of salvation off of our own strength and rested it in the strength and finished work of Jesus, 
then the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, saved from our past sin uh, and the guilt associated with that before God. Uh, We are being saved and we will be saved one day from the wrath of God. Salvation is all-encompassing, and it is Jesus alone that saves. And so if that's you today, uh, we praise God for that, and we take the Lord's Supper uh, every week if that's you, if that's us for Christians. This is something we do, and so it's really, really important for us to understand what we're doing, and that's my primary objective today, is just not, not to give so much information that we walk out more confused than we came in, but that we would walk away by God's grace with a really clear understanding, good theology, um, and by God's grace, we might be changed through our understanding of what the Lord's Supper is and how sweet the Lord's Supper is. So here's my prayer for us this morning, that by God's grace, every time we come to the table on Sundays, it's coming forward, partaking of the elements together. I want us to not just have a robust theology of what we're doing, though that's important, and necessary, but to grow in grace as we remember the gospel and experience joyful fellowship with Jesus by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to flesh out today, that the Lord's Supper is more than just something you and I remember about something Jesus did. Does that make sense? That there's actually substance happening when we come to the table and partake of the Lord's Supper together. There's something significant and spiritual happening when you and I take the Lord's Supper that makes the Lord's Supper unique. Cool? That's the big idea, and that's our prayer. Charles Spurgeon said once, famous British pastor, I think the moments we are nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. The moments that you and I are nearest to heaven Does your heart, and I ask myself this question, long for heaven? Like, is heaven something that you and I look forward to? Well, if we believe that heaven is some disembodied spiritual place only, probably not. Probably not looking forward to that. I don't look forward to that, and that's good because that's not what heaven's going to be like. It's not going to be a disembodied spiritual place. It's going to be a physical place. What the book of Revelation refers to as the new earth, the new heavens and new earth. While the Bible began in a garden and spiritual and physical uh, fellowship with God, all things, when Christ returns, will come to a consummated, glorious end on a new resurrected earth in which spirituality is not all that matters, but physicality as well. Um, When I became a Christian, Uh, the way that I was discipled and the way that I was generally taught in the context that I was in at the time was that Christianity was a spiritual thing, okay? Things were even said like, um, you know, we really want to focus not, uh, we really want to focus this year, like the beginning of the new year, for instance, we really want to focus this year not on the physical, but on the spiritual. And like, I get the sentiment behind that comment. It's just not biblically true, okay? God is sovereign over all things, physicality is a good thing, and the fact that Jesus has given us a a physical thing um, that has spiritual significance and spiritual weight that you and I get to partake in every week is something that we just need to to understand so that we can enjoy and take by faith these elements. So I just want to ask some questions and give some answers today from the passage regarding uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. All of those words can be used interchangeably. They mean the same thing, okay? Okay. Let me read the verses again, and then I'm going to ask the questions, give the answers. That's going to be the sermon. Cool? Excellent. All right. 
And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So uh, first question, what is Jesus doing here? Okay, what is Jesus doing in this particular setting right now? What Jesus is doing is he's turning the Passover meal, which is something that the Jews celebrated on a yearly basis um, that started, uh, that was inaugurated when God rescued them out of slavery of Egypt from the Egyptians and led them into the promised land. They were to celebrate the Passover every year as a means to remember the salvation and rescue of their God. Jesus is taking the Passover meal uh, and he's turning it into the Eucharist or what we would refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper. He is establishing himself as the true and better Passover lamb. Jesus is establishing himself as the true and better and final Passover lamb. He's doing something that's going to be completely outside the, uh, the box and the conception of what the disciples understood to be reality, which we've seen him do all through the book of Mark. He did it with the temple. I'm the better temple, Jesus says. I'm the true temple. This temple is going to be destroyed. Well, that was everything to the Jewish people was worship God at the temple. Now Jesus is saying, worship me, I'm the temple, okay? And so he's doing the same thing here uh, with the Passover. At the Passover, uh, every year, the, 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 the Jews who are celebrating the Passover, specifically the host, would raise four cups of wine uh, for celebration. And this is from Exodus 6, 6 and 7. These cups would represent something different that pertained to their salvation from the Egyptians. One was their rescue from Egypt was what one cup represented. Two uh, was their rescue from slavery. Three was their redemption by God's power. And four was called the covenant of praise, their renewed relationship with God. Most commentators believe that when Jesus is saying this, this cup is my blood, this bread is my body, that he is raising the third cup, the cup of redemption, because Jesus is going to be and is our redemption. Jesus is saying that no longer on a yearly basis do you have to practice this Passover celebration and sacrifice this Passover lamb because I am the Passover lamb. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. There's no longer a call or a need to, um, to do this yearly ceremony or ritual in order for your sins to be forgiven because I through the sacrifice of his body, I'm going to be sacrificed once for all. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, and then 11 through 18 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Does that make sense? Okay, so the law of God in the Old Testament gives a shadow of the things to come and by those ceremonies and rituals can never perfect those who draw near because it has to be offered every year. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, listen to this, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every time the Jewish people took Passover, partook of Passover, they were reminded of their sin. Okay, This lamb is here being slaughtered because of my sin. He says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's called expiation, to take away our sin. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But listen to this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's God's people. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus is about to inaugurate the new covenant. The old covenant was... Uh, the law of God written on tablets of stone, the new covenant is established by Jesus through his death and resurrection and ascension and is now by the power of the Holy Spirit going to be written on the hearts of God's people forever. There is no longer a need for you and I to offer yearly sacrifices, daily sacrifices in order to be made right with God because Jesus is that final and ultimate sacrifice. 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus is, this is a major moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. This cup, the cup of redemption, that you've always known to be the cup of redemption that pertained only to this time in Egypt, is now the cup of my blood, which speaks a better word, more sufficient sacrifice. The blood and bulls of goats can't take away sins. My blood takes away your sin forever. Past, present, future sin taken away forever. Last week was a pretty hard sermon about Judas. It's pretty intense. I, I really, this is just gospel all throughout what Jesus is doing here. So you and I do not draw near to God by means of ceremony, ritual, or sacrifice, but listen to this, but by the means of Jesus alone and his finished work. We take hold of Jesus alone and trust in his finished work for the forgiveness of sins. So that's what he's doing. He's changing their paradigm. He's about to inaugurate the new covenant from the old covenant. And he's starting all of this with a toast. Okay, third cup of wine, the cup of redemption. This is what Jesus is doing. Second question, what is Jesus teaching? All right, so let's look at his words again. He says, take, that's a command, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, so this, these statements, if you really think about it, I was talking to somebody last week about um, uh, the song, uh, There is a Fountain, and how it's a beautiful song if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, strange. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You're like, oh, it's dark, right? Like if, if you don't understand, like what we sing at Celebratory, right? We should. Uh, It's beautiful. Um, But man, Jesus, this is a hard saying. And it was hard for the disciples too in the first century. Jesus is saying, hey, take this bread. This is my body. Eat it. Okay, take this wine. This is my blood. Drink it. It's not the first time he said this in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 60. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, that's remains in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died from the Old Testament. Whoever feeds on this bread, Jesus himself, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Okay, hard saying. Maybe it is for you. Maybe you're hearing this and you're like, that's strange. Didn't know Jesus said that. No, that's what communion was about, feeding on the flesh of the Son of God and drinking of his blood. Uh, Jesus says it nonetheless, so we have to work to understand by God's grace what Jesus is teaching here. Is Jesus saying that the disciples and us, the church, need to eat his literal body and drink his literal blood? That's not what he's saying. Uh, We know that because of all of the metaphorical ways Jesus talks about himself throughout the Gospels, okay? Um, Jesus often uses this kind of language to describe himself. He says, I am the door of the sheep. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and you are the branches, he says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. Jesus often uses metaphorical language to describe himself, and, and most often to say all of these Old Testament realities are fulfilled in me. Okay, so the, the, the manna from heaven that fell down and nourished uh, the people of God in the Old Testament as they were on their way into the promised land, Jesus is saying, I'm the true bread from heaven. Feast on me. Drink of me. Jesus is not literally saying then that his body and bread is meant to be eaten literally. What is he saying? Saying that the bread signifies or represents his body and the wine or juice uh, signifies or represents his blood. Okay, these things signify and represent the body and the blood of Jesus. So then, what then is communion? I know I'm asking a lot of questions and giving answers to those. It's just what is what is communion? It's the meaning of it. Communion is one of two what we call sacraments. Okay, communion is one of two sacraments instituted by Jesus himself for the good and flourishing of his people in the local church to the glory of God. Okay, It's one of two sacraments given to the local church, baptism and communion. Baptism is to be observed in each Christian's life one time as a sign of the beginning of their Christian life. This is Mark chapter 1, Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3. Okay? If you have not been baptized as a Christian and you're here, man, I want to encourage a conversation, not to try to coerce or force or any of those kinds of things. We have a baptism class uh, coming up this semester. want to encourage you to be there if that's you so that we can have a conversation about the significance of baptism. It is a, it's a sacrament and ordinance given by Jesus himself for the church. And it's one time at the beginning of the Christian life. Communion, on the other hand, is to be observed repeatedly throughout the Christian life as a sign and grace of continued and experiential fellowship with Jesus. Let me read that one more time. Communion is to be observed repeatedly 
throughout the Christian life as a sign and grace of continued and experiential fellowship with Jesus. We use the word grace intentionally, not because communion saves you or has any power in and of itself to save you. (coughs) Who does that? We just belabored to make that point. Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone, repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. But communion is more, we would argue in just a moment, than just a mere symbol of something like that we do to remember what Jesus has done, a mental exercise. It's more than that. It actually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, nourishes us and grows us in grace. Okay? So that's what communion is. Communion is not merely a mental exercise, but has significant objective spiritual benefits to the recipient. This benefit, however, is not automatic, but must be received by grace through faith. And so again, we'll flesh We'll flesh. We'll flesh that out in just a moment. Okay. Um, to, to understand this, so, so essentially what we're saying, what we believe the Bible teaches, is um, while baptism is a one-time thing, communion is an ongoing thing in the life of a Christian, and that it's not just something that we remember, there's an actual objective spiritual benefit. We have to ask the question of where is Christ in communion? Okay. So I want to run through three of the most Um, uh, widely held views of communion for us to understand and then tell you where we land as a church so that we can understand, okay? Um, So how is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? The first view is called transubstantiation, okay? Transubstantiation. This is the view that the Catholic Church holds, and this view simply teaches, I don't have the time to, to really go through all of what these views teach other than ours, But transubstantiation essentially teaches that the bread and the wine actually become metaphysically the body and blood of Jesus. That there is a metaphysical um, transition or change that happens in the elements that when you partake of the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice, that it metaphysically transforms into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Does that make sense? transubstantiation. And the way they get that primarily is through reading the text of Jesus when he's saying, feed on my flesh, drink of my blood, reading those literally. Okay. And so in light of what we just talked about, that if you take all of Jesus teachings and the different metaphorical ways that he refers to himself, we would conclude that he's doing the same thing here. He's not saying you need to literally eat my flesh. He's referring to himself in a metaphorical way. Does that make sense? Transubstantiation. We do not hold that view. Okay. Number two uh, is what's called memorialism. This is the more widely held view among Baptists, okay? We are a Baptist church, all right? If you didn't know that. We are a Baptist church, um, but we don't hold this view either. And this view would basically say, which was popularized or um, really took off in the 16th century with um, many would say a man named Zwingli and the Protestant Reformation. And in an attempt to correct Um, the transubstantiation view, the actual presence view, um, this memorialism view uh, would essentially just say that what we're doing at the Lord's Supper is mentally remembering what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Okay, we are are, uh, rehearsing, reminding of ourselves of the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, that it is a a primarily, it's a memorial thing. We're remembering... uh, we're remembering what Jesus has done. That's the second view. Um, 
One commentator that I read this week uh, jokingly referred to this view as the real absence view. That Jesus just isn't here. Okay, He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and that's true. He is. But there's really nothing of spiritual objective significance going on in the Lord's Supper. Many of you, I did, probably grew up with this view. We took the Lord's Supper maybe twice a year. Okay, Why would you take it more than that if that's all it is? Pass the plate, you take the bread, you take the, the wine or the juice, and you take it, and it's fine. And everybody took it at the church that I came up in. Like, the kids took it, the babies took it. Like, I mean, it, it just, it, that's, just, that's just how it went, okay? Because wouldn't blame it all on that view, obviously. There were more things at work there, but, um, but, but that's, that's the view, that this is a memorial um, of the Lord's death. Then the third view, and this is the one that we advocate here at Redemption Hill and believe wholeheartedly, it's called the spiritual presence view. Okay, this is... This is the Reformed view. We are a Reformed church as well, okay? And and so the spiritual presence view essentially teaches this, that in communion, while Jesus is always present everywhere, in Matthew 28, he says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. In Matthew 18, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. While Jesus is always present everywhere because he is God, in communion, he is present in a special way. He's present in a special way. We're coming to his table. And he comes to give himself to us. So Millard Erickson says, Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but not physically or bodily. Rather, his presence in the sacrament is spiritual or dynamic. So here's how reformer John Calvin would illustrate what that means. If you're like, great, what does that mean? Here's how he would illustrate it. He would use the sun as an illustration. Calvin asserted that Christ is present influentially. The sun remains in the heavens. Its warmth and light are present on earth. So the radiance of the spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ's flesh and blood. So can you picture that? That the sun is in the heavens. The sun doesn't move. It's there. Okay. But the heat and the light and the power that radiates from the sun is felt here. It's experienced here. And in the same way, while Jesus, the Son of God, remains at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things until all his enemies are put under his feet and he returns to judge the living and the dead and usher in the new heavens and new earth, his power manifested through the person of the Holy Spirit is here in a special way at communion. So when you and I come to the table, we're doing something more objective and powerful and beautiful and life-changing is happening in this moment than us purely remembering what Jesus did. Romans 8, 9 through 11 reminds us that it is by the Spirit that Christ dwells in us. When we say, even the, the saying, Jesus lives in our heart, well, Jesus' body doesn't live in our heart, but the Holy Spirit lives in, lives in us. Does that make sense? So in a similar way, we do not literally eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus at communion. Jesus is bodily in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but in communion, Jesus, through the person of the Holy Spirit, is spiritually present with his people as we dine with him at his table. So we dine with him at, at his table. So what are the benefits then of communion for us as followers of Jesus? There are past, present, and future benefits of the Lord's Supper. 
Everybody following so far? Cool. Past, present, future benefits of the Lord's Supper. Past benefits of the Lord's Supper is this, that when we come to the table of Jesus, Jesus graciously, sweetly reminds us of his death for us on the cross and our call to believe. We're coming to his table, and it's as if Jesus is sitting at the table with us, reminding us of his death for us. That there's no longer a need for yearly sacrifice. While the people of God in the Old Testament were reminded of their sin when they slaughtered the Passover lamb, when we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the forgiveness of our sin. It's it's finished. Your past sin, your present sin and struggle, the future sin that you'll commit tomorrow, finished, taken away, forgiven, cleansed. We're reminded of this. And we're called to believe. John 6, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him on whom he sent. There are lots of works given for us to do in the New Testament, but what supersedes them all and what drives them all is this command, that you and I believe in the Son of God and his work on our behalf. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus reminds us of his work on the cross and calls us to believe, to receive those elements with faith. And he's so kind to give us a physical way to do that. Because often, again, we we don't separate the spiritual and the physical as if one is better than the other. It's called Gnosticism. We don't do that. Number two, past benefit, is Jesus reminds us of of the benefits we have through his death on the cross. So it reminds us of the cross. And number two, he reminds us of the benefits that we share in him through his work on the cross. That Romans chapter 6, we are dead to sin and alive to God because of the cross. We have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2, and the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We're reminded of the fact that we've been delivered from darkness and into God's eternal kingdom. It's Colossians 1. We're reminded of the fact that because of the cross, we are declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus took our sin, we take his righteousness. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus, in our place, for our sin, became sin on our behalf, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. We're reminded that because of the cross, we're forgiven of all sin, past, present, future. We're reminded that because of the cross, we have peace with God. You and I are no longer at enmity and strife with God. God is with us. He is for us. He loves us. He likes us. God is our father. Jesus is our brother. The Holy Spirit is our helper. We're fully accepted by him. We're reminded of these benefits that we have now, not that we'll have later. They'll be fully actualized later when we see Jesus face to face, but we have these benefits right now in the Lord's Supper. Jesus sits at the table with us and he reminds us of them. Not just that I've died for you, but because I've died for you, look at all you have in me now. Enjoy me. I think we're all still learning what it means to actually enjoy God because we don't think enough about the benefits we have now. So we sit at the table with Jesus and he sweetly reminds us of these benefits. There are present benefits as well. Those are past Reminded of things past, Jesus reminds us. Present benefits, 
is um, that we get to proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus to ourselves and others. Okay, present benefit is that in the Lord's Supper, in taking the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of Jesus and the benefits that we have in the death of Jesus to ourselves and to others. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, only other place in the New Testament specifically uh, that talks about the Lord's Supper at length other than what Jesus does in the Gospels. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation. It's an apologetic of the gospel. Why do we have kids? Why do we want kids in the service at the end of service before parents take communion? Because we want to proclaim the Lord's death to them. They don't get to sit in the service. They do hear the gospel in kids. I know they do. Our kids workers are amazing. Um, But here they get to see something special, not just see the gospel or not just hear the gospel proclaimed, but to see it displayed through the taking of the elements. We are proclaiming Jesus' life for me. Jesus' blood shed for me. Take the opportunity to proclaim that to your kids when they ask, what are you doing? This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. Jesus saved me. His body was delivered up for me. His blood was shed for me. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that to one another, and we also proclaim it to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor, would say often in his book, Spiritual Depression, he would say that you and I as Christians spend too much time thinking to ourselves and not enough time talking to ourselves. Doing what David did in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? David wasn't thinking those things. He was saying them. Okay? We live in our thoughts. Let's leverage the Lord's Supper by God's grace to be a verbal and physical and visible proclamation of what is true about you today. Whatever accusations the enemy throws at you, whatever your navel-gazing is doing to you, the Lord's Supper is a physical reminder and a spiritual reminder of what the Lord Jesus has done for you and the benefits that you share in Him. We Another present um, benefit is the Lord's Supper allows us the opportunity to give clear sign to our unity as Christians. Paul goes on to say, because there is one bread, we are... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So we come to the table. The Lord's Supper also signifies and displays the unity that Christians have with one another. Bible calls us the temple of God, calls us a family. So this is why every week, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we call for, for horizontal reconciliation before you come to the table if you need to do that. Okay, listen. And I'll talk more about this in a moment. It's 1101. Um, in a moment, I'll talk more about the reality of Paul's warning of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. But what was unworthy about the way the Christians in Corinth took the Lord's Supper didn't have anything really to do with their theology of the Lord's Supper. They knew what the Lord's Supper was about. It had to do with the way they treated one another. They were coming to the table in an unworthy manner. The Lord's Supper was given by Jesus to signify and display the unity that he himself was going to purchase on the cross. And so we want to take very seriously, and it's a joyful command for us to be at peace with one another. That if we are unreconciled in the room, we take care of that before we come to the table. I can't make you do that. I can't see inside your heart. I can ask you not to come to the table. And if you choose to come to the table, I love you. It's on you. 
And so we want to take very, very seriously this reality that the unity of Christians is something Jesus himself purchased, and the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to display that. And then finally, there are future benefits to it. Jesus says in the text, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day comes when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So many think that this is the fourth cup that Jesus is referring to. Okay? He's not going to drink this fourth cup until the day that he returns and sets up the new Eden, the new heavens and new earth here among us. And on that day, you and I will celebrate with Jesus physically, bodily, at the table with him, that last and final cup, that cup of praise, the reunion of God with his, uh, with his people. Revelation 19 says, Blessed, happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper uh, of the Lamb. And then lastly, before we, we get into who can partake of this, and that'll be the end of the sermon, uh, is uh, a present objective benefit of the Lord's Supper is that it gives us spiritual nourishment that we are spiritually nourished when you and I come to the table. One author says, just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper give nourishment to us. But they also picture the fact that there is spiritual nourishment and refreshment that Christ is giving to our souls. Indeed, the ceremony that Jesus instituted is in its very nature designed to teach this. This is what by God's grace, one of the things that God uses to grow his people in grace. We are spiritually nourished. We're spiritually nourished by the person and power of the Holy Spirit through the elements to worship God. We're spiritually nourished by the person and power of the Holy Spirit through the elements to live on mission for God, live on the mission of God. Okay, so every week we come, again, there are objective, real, tangible things that are happening to you and I as we partake of the Lord's Table. This is one of the means by which God grows us in grace is through the Lord's Supper. So who can partake? Who can partake and how do we partake are going to be the last two questions. Who can partake? Baptized, self-examined Christians. This is who can partake of the Lord's Supper. Baptized, examined, self-examined Christians. Did not say, have it all together, Christians. Never fail, Christians. Never take one or two steps back, Christians. It's not what we're saying. Jesus invites sinners and sufferers to the table who by God's grace are willing to repent. Not about being a better person to come to the table. It's about recognizing your need before you come to the table and clinging to Jesus. For those who by God's grace have clung to Jesus, you're invited to the table. The Lord commands us to examine our hearts before we do that, to not come in, a, um, in an unworthy way if we're unreconciled with one another, to take care of that before we come to the table. But nonetheless, the Lord's Supper is not reserved for those who have it all together. It's reserved for those who don't and run to Jesus. Thomas Watson said, Our sins should humble us, but they must not discourage us from coming to Christ. A weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. That's what we do at the Lord's Supper. Weak faith, don't always believe. Many things I still don't believe. God help my unbelief. A weak faith lays hold of a strong Christ. The one who sits at the table and invites us to his table. Who cannot partake? Non-Christians. Non-Christians. 
non-Christians, those who have not put those who have not put their hope in the finished work of Jesus for them. Or those who claim to be Christians but are put under church discipline, conversation for a different day, put under church discipline for refusing to repent after being graciously pleaded with and exhorted by the elders and the church. Matthew 18. Okay? Because at that point, the Bible tells us talks about excommunication. This idea of handing someone over who is unwilling to repent sorrowfully in hopes and prayers that they do repent and are restored, handing them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That they are then considered to be a non-Christian at that point. Okay? That this is who cannot come to the table. Who can come to the table? Broken, sinful, suffering people who cling to Jesus come to the table. Those who have not done that, do not do that, cannot come to the table, but are encouraged and exhorted by me now and by us every week to take hold of Jesus instead. Don't worry about the Lord's Supper right now. Take hold of the true bread of life. The one who came to save sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grab hold of Jesus. Take hold of Jesus, and then you can come and you can partake of the Lord's Supper. This is communion. My hope in this, it's a lot of information, a lot of answers, a lot of questions, is that you and I would have a clear understanding of what we're doing every week, that we might do it in faith by God's grace and be nourished, that we'd be more vibrant followers of Jesus, that communion would be a part of God growing us in that grace. We'd love him more. We'd trust him more. We would abide in him on a more regular basis and that we would boldly live on the mission of God. And that communion would be one piece of how the Holy Spirit refreshes us through that and empowers us through the elements to do that when we go out tomorrow into our workplaces. Does that make sense? All right, so let's pray. And then I'm gonna, and then we'll, we'll prepare to take the supper together.